Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the Bach Festival Society of Winter Park celebrates their 85th anniversary season. I figured in the 85th season, we should, we should bring out the big guns. You know, how many times does a group celebrate 85 years? And the reason we've got to 85 years is because we do the big pieces. Since the 1950s, people have been visiting Spook Hill, which is now in the National Register of Historic Places. Local people would just kind of start weaving these stories, connecting it to some sort of ancient supernatural power. And the 1960s television comedy, I Dream of Jeannie, was set in Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. That's the Gloria from the Mass in B minor of Bach, one of the works being presented as part of the Bach Festival Society's 85th anniversary season. Since 1935, the Bach Festival has been performed in the Spanish Mediterranean style Knowles Memorial Chapel at the heart of the Rollins College campus in Winter Park. Betsy Gwynn is executive director of the Bach Festival. It was 1935. Winter Park was a winter destination for wealthy New Englanders to come and take advantage of this beautiful weather on our lakes. And the Knowles Chapel was just two years old. And there was interest from the dean of the chapel and the music department to create a program honoring the 250th anniversary of the birth of Johann Sebastian Bach. So they presented a Bach Vespers concert and it was standing room only. They ran out of programs. There was a woman in the audience named Isabel Sprague-Smith, and she attended and recognized right away that the community was hungry for such a quality classical music program, and she made it her mission to create an annual Bach Festival based on the Bethlehem Bach Festival in Pennsylvania to bring the beauty of Bach to the South. And she really spearheaded it, created a, a founding committee, um, contacted artists to perform, scholars to lecture, 
we were broadcast nationally on NBC radio in the late 40s and early 50s. The first organization to present the B minor mass south of the Mason-Dixon line. So she set the ball rolling. John Sinclair is conductor and artistic director of the Bach Festival Society of Winter Park. Well, they wanted to commemorate the 250th anniversary of Bach's birth. And so the day after his birthday, on March 22, 1935, they had a program of, of various Bach works. They thought it was such a good idea, they should repeat it again. And they did it the next year, and, and then the third year, and you know how the saying goes, you do it three times, it's a tradition. So it continued on for many, many years. And then the founder of it, Mrs. Sprague Smith, and the original conductor, Christopher Honas, Mrs. Sprague Smith died, and she was really the cheerleader. And the president at that time of the college, Hamilton Holt, called everyone together and said, are we going to continue this? We don't really have our uh, cheerleader anymore, and maybe this was a nice run, but we should do something. Do any of you want to take this under your wing? Well, the story goes that uh, Mr. John Tiki, who was there, said, well, you know, I'll take it for a year or two. And that meant 52 years as the president of the Bach Festival Society. Born in 1907, John Tietke became wealthy in Florida's sugar industry in the 1930s. He moved to Winter Park in 1948 to serve as treasurer and business manager of Rollins College. Tietke helped to establish and develop several major arts organizations in Central Florida, including the Bach Festival. John Sinclair. John was um, always a forward thinker. He loved great music. So the choir was to do all these wonderful masterworks, and that continues to this day. He also uh, started a visiting artist series. And I think of it a little bit as Muhammad no longer went to the mountain, so he brought the mountain to him. And he loved great artists. And his rule for me when I started taking over all the booking of the guest artists, I only want you to bring people that you would pay a big ticket for at Lincoln Center. And so his idea was bring world-class talent here to Winter Park. So he saw the idea of that. He also saw the expansion of the Bach Festival from a simple weekend to something in the fall, something in the spring, a longer weekend now up to three weeks, and including other programs around that, including a Christmas program. So it, it really expanded. Betsy Gwynn. He was really a larger than life person in terms of his knowledge, his passion for music and the arts. He was a board member for many of the arts organizations here in Central Florida, but his heart was really in the Bach Festival. He attended almost every rehearsal of the choir, was a self-made man, had real estate holdings and agriculture in South Florida that proved to be very successful. So he was a man of great means and he, at the end of the season, he was able to write a check. So under that leadership, he promoted excellence. He had the clout in the community to make people aware of the programming. Um, he had a relationship with the college that fostered that continued partnership. And he was our board president and treasurer for 52 years until his death in 2004. Tietke gave $1 million to the Bach Festival that was matched by the Elizabeth Morse Genius Foundation to create an endowment, but Gwynne says that fundraising is a constant effort. Named in recognition of the 250th anniversary of Bach's birth, the Bach Festival repertoire includes work by many other composers. John Sinclair. They quickly uh, decided, I think somewhere about the 10th year, uh, Christopher Honas thought, Let's see, that could be a little limiting. So we'll say that we'll do works that Bach could have influenced. 
Well, let's be realistic. Anything in Western tradition, Mr. Bach's name is on. Uh, and, and, and it bears noting that Mrs. Sprague Smith, when she started the Bach Festival, said to bring culture to the youth of the South. And so it has always been the idea that Bach was the main, the main impetus and, and the, main, the main reason we existed, but we should do other pieces. And so anything influenced by Mr. Bach is fair game. And so that means everything musically. John Sinclair has been conductor and artistic director of the Bach Festival since 1990. This is his 30th season. What I have seen is an organization even maturing more. I've seen the continuation of a great cultural tradition and to realize that I stood on the shoulders of people to get here and I hope that people will find that mine were good to stand on when they leave. I think my favorite, my favorite parts of this might be just the wonderful friendships and the great music I make with so many people, uh, particularly in the choir and the orchestra. To ask me to pick a favorite piece or a favorite memory would be a little bit like picking a favorite child. Hard to do, but the entire experience has changed my life, and I hope it's enriched the lives of others around. While it's an independent organization, the Bach Festival has been based at Rollins College from its inception. The organization has had a significant impact on Florida culture. The Bach Festival Society being founded here, uh, it became pretty immediately a private organization. Uh, Mr. Tiki did not want the Bach Festival to have any uh, negative impact on the college financially. So it became very independent pretty much from the beginning. But there is certainly a wonderful relationship. We are housed at Rollins College, we started at Rollins College. It's no accident that I'm a professor here as well. That makes sense. But the impact is it immediately brings a world-class organization right in the middle of the, of the heart of, of Rollins College and into the middle of Winter Park and beyond the Central Florida and area. Our impact is also felt in all the choir members that have come through here and how many teachers that we have trained that are now in the schools teaching and how many church choir directors. Uh, it is truly a labor of love and, and, it, it, and it expands exponentially based on uh, the number of people that we've, we've had in our organization, both as a performer and as a uh, audience member. And I've always thought that you look at classical music as the original inspiration of the composer that goes to the inspiration of the artist, that goes to the inspiration of the audience, and that feeds back around again to everyone being a part of that experience. Very participatory. We have many choir members that have been with us for, for decades because it becomes such a part of their life. And in turn, we become part of the life of this college. And I, I love to see students that come in and sing and spend four years as part of the choir or a few. And I know a few that have gone on to take maybe positions with Rollins and continue to sing. And we have members of the faculty that have also been with us for decades and what an important aspect Bach Festival is to their life and then to all of those singers who then take the training that Dr. Sinclair gives them that practice and polish and they take it back to their own church choirs or to their own other musical interests. So I think Bach has tentacles far and wide throughout the community and we have choir members that come from nine counties throughout Central Florida to participate so it's not just an Orange County Bach Choir but it's really Central Florida's Bach Choir. The most famous graduate of Rollins College performed in the Bach Festival Choir, Fred Rogers of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. John Sinclair. 
Oh, I, I adored Fred. He became a, a wonderful friend, and um, he spoke wonderfully of his years with the Bach Festival Choir. Um, it influenced him musically. I know uh, at his memorial service that we did for the college, he had told me that he wanted to be sure that I had some Bach in the program, and we ended with a piece from St. John Passion and, and did the famous air in the program. And so it was influential to him, but it was his participating with us is inspirational. Uh, his wife, Joanne, uh, tells me that singing in a choir is her favorite activity because to put your small voice together with others makes it the most powerful force you can imagine. So we are really proud that Fred was a member of the Bach Festival Choir, and we at Rollins are proud that he's an alum, um, and I'm just grateful to have been his friend. As John Sinclair explains, the 85th season of the Winter Park Bach Festival includes some very large, challenging choral works. I figured in the 85th season, we should, we should bring out the big guns. Um, you know, how many times does a group celebrate 85 years? And the reason we've got to 85 years is because we do the big pieces. And so if you looked at the 10 most important pieces of choral music, I think you're going to hear five of them this year. You're going to start with the Haydn creation, one of the great masterworks of, of the classic era. And we're going to end the season with Elijah, one of the great masterworks of, of the Romantic era. And in between, in the middle, you're going to get a B minor mass, Bach's perhaps most important work, and perhaps the most important historic work going forward in understanding all the styles of the Baroque era. Throw in also a Brahms Requiem, maybe the most elegant piece of the Romantic era for choir. Throw in a program of spiritual spaces, a program of concerti of uh, of the Beethoven Emperor and the Beethoven Violin Concerto, throw in a New World Symphony, and lots of other programs throughout the year, including our Insights and Sound series and our uh, holiday and Christmas concerts. It's a big year, and it's going to be a fun year. And the other piece that you can't do without is on the 250th anniversary of Mr. Beethoven's birth, we will be doing the Ninth Symphony also on the festival. The 85th season of the Bach Festival of Winter Park is underway on the campus of Rollins College. Ticket information is at bachfestivalflorida.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org.
Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, an informal tourist attraction called Spook Hill has been visited since the 1950s, and it was recently placed in the National Register of Historic Places. Yeah, that's right, Ben. And Spook Hill really represents the mid-century roadside attraction popularity that was occurring in Florida during that time period. So there were places like Cypress Gardens and the Wikiwachi Springs and these places that would try and attract the plethora of motorists, the post-World War II motorists who were driving into Florida, visiting the state, and were stopping, of course, along Florida's state roads and highways. This is really pre-interstate system. So a lot of people were coming through small towns in Florida. And anything that would pull people into these towns, the city businesses and chamber of commerces would jump on that opportunity. And Spook Hill really represents one of those opportunities. It's essentially just a road, but when you park on this spot right in the middle of the road facing a hill, put the car into neutral, it seems as though you're going downhill, but your car will then start rolling backwards, seemingly up the hill. It's what's called a gravity hill, and it's an optical illusion, but it gives the effect of your vehicle actually moving up the hill. And it's not very long. We're talking 80 meters or so, the entire stretch of the effect, but it's very entertaining. It's, it's kind of an interesting and, and a, kind of a fun thing to do if, if traveling in, in the Lake Wales area of Polk County. And you have here some documents from the Florida Historical Society archive that are related to Spook Hill. Yeah, that's right. The first thing we're looking at is a map of Lake Wales. And this was produced in the late 1940s, early 1950s. And it looks like your standard map showing the platted, gridded street system. And here to the northern part of the city, we see Fifth Avenue, just north of North Lake Wales, which is part of the actual Lake Wales. And that stretch of road between Burns Avenue and what would become Spook Hill Elementary School in North Lake Wales is a small little nondescript strip of land that is the the actual Spook Hill, and that's where the effect occurs, if you will, and that's where the attraction is. So in the late 1940s, it wasn't anything that was well advertised. We're really not even clear who first discovered this phenomena, uh, whether it was, uh, you know, some county road worker who parked their truck and then thought, oh my gosh, my car's rolling backwards. But we do know in the early 1950s, by about 1953, is the first documented evidence of a sign stating that this effect does occur at this particular area. So from that point on, the Chamber of of Commerce for the city jumped at this opportunity and said, hey, you're coming to Lake Wales, visit Bach Tower, Mountain Lake Sanctuary, but while you're here, park your car on this line and it'll go backwards. And they started kind of mining these stories and building up the story that would become the, the Spook Hill phenomena that would lead to, of course, listing on the National Register over 50 years later. Now, the experiences people have at Spook Hill have a scientific explanation, but supernatural stories still persist. Yeah, and that's probably really the thing that draws people to Spook Hill today. As I said before, it's just a small one-lane road where you would park your car and go backwards. But it's the stories that not only a chamber of commerce, but local people would just kind of start weaving these stories, connecting it to some sort of ancient supernatural power. What we're looking at here are actually a series of postcards. So again, it ties into to commerce and development and advertisement. There are dozens and dozens of postcards that talk about Spook Hill. And one of the earliest shows this sign, and here's a ghost on the 
right side of the sign telling you to park your car and the ghost will mysteriously push your car backwards up this hill. There were other stories about Native Americans who were possibly buried on the site and the Native American ghost would move your car. Another one actually connects a pirate who retired to Lake Wales sometime in the 20th century. He was killed in, in some sort of bar fight and then uh, pushes your car away from his gravesite. All manner of stories. And that's part of why it's important for the National Register. It's not that these supernatural ideas are, are really subscribed to by the National Park Service, but it's the fact that they have influenced culture in some way over the course of 60, 70 years now. Well, very scary. Thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. To see the Spook Hill documents we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. Holly Baker is Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science. She has this look at the cultural impact of the 1960s TV series I Dream of Jeannie. With the arrival of NASA and the U.S. space program in 1958, Brevard County soon became known as the Space Coast. The idea of space exploration captivated the world and influenced popular culture through architecture, fashion, toys, food, music, books, movies, and even whimsical television shows such as Lost in Space, The Jetsons, Star Trek, and I Dream of Jeannie. The popular American television sitcom I Dream of Jeannie originally aired from 1965 to 1970 and was set in and around Cape Kennedy, Florida. Barbara Eden portrays a 2,000-year-old genie rescued from a bottle found on a beach by U.S. astronaut Major Tony Nelson, played by Larry Hagman. Jeannie falls in love with Major Nelson, and they eventually marry. Major Nelson and Jeannie lived at the fictional address of 1020 Palm Drive in nearby Cocoa Beach. Historian Dr. Lori Walters is a research assistant professor at the Institute for Simulation and Training at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. She recently talked to me about the television show I Dream of Jeannie and how it encapsulated Cocoa Beach during the height of the space program. Cocoa Beach becomes a very well-known community as a result of the space and missile industry. Astronauts would stay in Cocoa Beach, so, you know, it had this, this um, notoriety, and then that only brings you then to why I Dream of Jeannie is set in Cocoa Beach. The name had become synonymous with the space and missile industry. And so it really brings a lot of notoriety. So not only does it bring this influx of people and, and the development and, and the shopping facilities and, and all of the other kinds of things that comes along with it, but it brings them almost, you know, I, you don't want to say instant notoriety, but you know, it really builds and builds until Brevard County is a very well-known county throughout the United States and, and globally. I Dream of Jeannie took place in Cocoa Beach, and the television show frequently mentioned the city and its connection to the space program. 
What I find fascinating is how many times Cocoa Beach is either named verbally in the program or visually, um, where they'll be driving up to, you know, Cocoa Beach City Hall, Cocoa Beach State Bank, um, the cop will pull him over, and, the, you know, of course, the patch on the side will say Cocoa Beach Police. And in one of the seasons, um, when the policeman pulled uh, Major Nelson over, you could actually see that it was the exact patch for a real Cocoa Beach policeman. You know, look at most television programs, you know, how often is the place that they live mentioned so frequently? But they did with Cocoa Beach. And I don't know whether it's because the name Cocoa Beach was so well known in the 1960s. Maybe it's just because it's a, it's a nice lyrical sounding, you know, exotic almost place, you know, Cocoa Beach. But yeah, it was often mentioned in the, in the program. As Dr. Walters explains, I Dream of Jeannie got a few details wrong about the space program. The big thing that it got wrong, obviously Major Nelson and Major Healy would not have been living in Cocoa Beach. When I Dream of Jeannie airs, uh, they would have been living in Houston. And so here you have Major Nelson and Major Healy. They were living here in Cocoa Beach um, because Cocoa Beach, again, had become so linked with, with the space program. And so that is, that is the, the one big thing that they got wrong. But the other thing is, is how military I Dream and Jeannie made NASA look. And, you know, the astronauts, even though uh, the majority of the early astronauts were a part of the military, they're not wearing their Air Force or, or Naval uniforms, or in John Glenn's case, you know, his Marine uniform. You know, more often than not, they're, they're photographed in civilian attire. And so that is the one thing, um, you know, I Dream of Jeannie shows them always in, in uniforms. But as a result of that, it does make it look very military. And so that is, is a big thing that they, that, that they got wrong. The television show I Dream of Jeannie also featured some geographical errors about Cocoa Beach. Dr. Lori Walters. What they got wrong about Cocoa Beach. So the last time I've checked... I didn't see mountains rising from the bottom of the Banana River, okay? And I don't know how many times you'd see, you know, Major Nelson's house. When they looked down the street, you could catch the, the, the glimpse of the mountains or when they were in downtown Cocoa Beach or whenever you'd catch the mountain. And, you know, of course, Southern California has mountains. But last time I checked, Florida was flat. And so that is one of the big things that they got wrong. It was a situation comedy. And... A situation comedy that involved a genie. You know, the, the premise of it alone was wild. It's part of what the mid-60s were. You know, a lot of fantasy, I think, just to make people not think about, you know, a lot of other things that were going on. Dr. Lori Walters is a space historian, and she confessed to me that I Dream of Genie sparked her interest in the space program when she was a child. I was amused by it, and uh, the idea of the space and missile industry, you know, the space program, and so I Dream a Genie, I think, did a, a very good job in keeping the idea of, of what the space program, this idyllic view of, of how cool the space program was. Um, it introduced me to that very cool aspect of the space program. And as a result, yeah, I, I will admit, I became interested in the space program and the history of it because of I Dream a Genie, not only from a, from a Florida standpoint, but obviously from a national and international standpoint. But I Dream of Jeannie was the one that, that set me in motion with it. Yeah, sure. I'm old enough now, I can admit that. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. 
You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us anytime at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.